Our scripture reading today is James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the living word of God for us today. Thanks, Paul. Last July, the world was riveted to their screens and their news feeds following a story of 12 young boys in Thailand who were part of a soccer team that were trapped in a cave and they went in to explore the cave when it was dry and then the waters came, started raining, the floods came, filled up with water, they were pushed to the back of the cave and, and many of you remember that. They were there a number of days and there were inter international effort to rescue them. That was July of 2018. One of the members of the dive team that rescued the boys was from the UK, a British diver named Josh Bratchley. Fast forward nine months later, now April 2019, just about a month ago, Bratchley and four of his diving friends entered another cave. This one is a fully immersed, always underwater cave, much closer to home for us. Raise your hand if you've ever been to Flins Lick, Tennessee. Anybody ever been to Flins Lick, Tennessee? There were two people in the first service. All right, we have one over here. It's in Jackson County, 90 minutes from here. Right in Flins Lick, there is a, a small little pond on private property called Mill Pond and in, underneath that pond, there is a cave that was discovered a couple of years ago. We'll put on the screen a picture. Uh, this is Josh Bratchley, the, the, the rescue, one of the rescuers from the, the Thailand uh, cave rescue. And, and that's that mill pond there. And of course, you can't see the cave. It's under the water. You dive under the water. You squeeze through this tiny little cave. Let me tell you about the, the cave that's uh, in that area. It's about 400 feet long, twists and turns. At places, it's only 18 inches from floor to ceiling. So you're underwater with all your dive gear on. You're squeezing through. At, at other places, it's the, the narrowness is only about three feet. I mean, just barely wide enough for somebody to get their shoulders through it. Because of all the silt in the water, even with the headlamp on, there's zero visibility, essentially, because all the, all the dust and particles and silt is all stirred up. You're literally feeling your way through this cave. Uh, this cave is a great example why cave diving is one of the most dangerous activities on the earth. There is so much that can go wrong. Think about if you run out of oxygen, if your oxygen tank malfunctions, you can't just pop back up to the surface. Depending on how deep in that cave you are, you probably aren't gonna make it out in time alive. You can die of hypothermia if you're in the cold water too long, and, and typically the water's very cold down under the earth where these caves are, and that was the case in April here in this um, cave not far from us. So what divers do, because one of the biggest dangers is not being able to find your way out, getting lost in the visibility and not being able to know through the twists and turns of the cave. So one of the things that they do is they take a guideline with them when they go in. And that, that guideline's literally their lifeline because when it's time to turn around, they just follow that line back out. Otherwise, they couldn't necessarily find their way back to the surface. Around 3 p.m. on April 16th of this year, Josh Bratchley and four friends went into the cave and only four men came out and none of them were Josh. The friends did not realize Josh was not with them until they emerged from the cave and they turned around to find that he had somehow lost the lifeline, lost the guideline. And with that zero visibility in this cave, without that guideline, there's no way he could possibly find his way out. He could be a, a few inches from the line and not even see it. The friends went back in over four or five unsuccessful dives over several hours to try to search for him and did not find him. They knew at some point he had been in there far longer than his oxygen could last. So the only hope for him to survive would be if he had found an air pocket in the cave. And it would also need to be an air pocket big enough for him to get out of the cold water so he wouldn't die of hypothermia. It was now the rescuer who needed rescue. The problem is there are literally only a handful of people in the world who could make this type of rescue attempt. 
in the course of time, there have only been 10 successful rescues from this type of cave. Again, this is different than the, the cave in Thailand, which was a dry cave that was flooded by water. This is an underwater cave. And there'd only been 10 successful rescues ever from these kinds of situations. Half of those rescues were made by the same guy, a diver named Ed Sorensen from Mariana, Florida. We have a photo of Ed. There he is, been diving for over 20 years, made five successful dives from scores of attempts to rescue someone. So at 2.30 a.m. on April 17th, Ed Sorensen's phone rang. Ed and Josh had never met, but they knew of one another. It's a small world in the diving circles, particularly when you get to this level of elite cave diving. Ed grabbed his gear and made a flight reservation for the first flight he could find out. He flew from Tallahassee through Atlanta to Nashville. When he landed in Nashville um, around noon or a little after noon the next day, the Tennessee Highway Patrol met him at the airport here in Nashville and put him on a helicopter, flew him straight to the cave in Jackson County. Uh, after an extensive pre-dive briefing where he learned about the cave from the other divers who had gone in and out, not being able to find their, their buddy, um, studied as much as he could about the cave without having gone in it yet, Ed went into the water about 6 p.m., 27 hours after Josh had lost his lifeline. Ed Sorensen knew he would most likely find a body. Instead... After making his way almost the entire length of the cave, he found an air pocket. And a very much alive Josh Bratchley calmly sitting on a ledge beside the water. Thanks for coming for me, Josh said. Who are you? <laughs> I'm Ed Sorensen, he responded. And Josh gave him a knowing look as he recognized his trademark diving gear. Ed guided Josh back out using the new guideline he'd laid on his way in. In less than an hour, both divers emerged to cheers from dozens of rescue workers at the surface. Josh refused any medical treatment. The only thing he wanted was a pizza. If someone hadn't gone in to rescue Josh Bratchley, he wouldn't be breathing oxygen today. I think it's interesting that James, at the very end of his remarkable letter that we've been studying for the last few months, he ends the letter with a rescue story, very similar to the one you just heard. Throughout this series, we've kind of seen that James is a practical guy and he's written a practical letter and he talks a lot about dangers in the Christian walk. Here are some of the topics that James has covered. He's he talked about suffering, temptation, doubt, wealth, anger, words. Who could ever forget the tongue costume that Lloyd came out in? Prejudice. False wisdom, arguments. And the last couple weeks, we've taken a deep dive in prayer. So James gets to the end of this very practical book, having talked about all these practical things, you know, dangers of the Christian life and some other things, parts, practical parts of the Christian life. And he essentially says, this walk of faith, men and women, brothers and sisters, which is the phrase he likes to use, is not a straight line. It has twists and turns, and some of you are going to get lost. So when that happens, James is saying in our two verses this morning, I don't want you to wonder about what to do. You, go back and get the ones that are lost. Go rescue them. Now, somehow I think we've largely lost this in our church today. We don't take this seriously. I think there's some interesting reasons why we don't. We're gonna talk about those reasons and we're gonna talk about how we might regain something important as part of our life, our body life as a church, even right here at Fellowship. Now, the theme of the last eight verses, just as a recap from the past two weeks, the theme is the intersection of God's work and our work. We call that active faith. How is it that so much of the work that God does on the earth, he does it through people? I think that's fascinating to me. There's so many ways God could accomplish things, and he primarily uses human agency 
to do his work on the earth. And we've been talking about that. So the last two weeks, the focus was on prayer. Week one, it was kind of the prayer of the elders, that there are certain circumstances that God says, a call upon the elders to pray for you. And by the way, many of you have done that. Thank you for responding to that. And it's been a joy for us to engage with those of you. Keep reaching out to us. We would love to pray for you. Then last week, Lloyd talked about prayers of all kinds. And we used the example of Elijah to say, he was a man just like you. He prayed it wouldn't rain, it didn't rain. Then he prayed it would rain, it rained. The bottom line from last week's message, as Lloyd taught, was just pray. Just pray. What an opportunity. And now in our two verses this morning, if you haven't turned there, go ahead and open up James 5, 19 to 20. It's the same theme, right? The intersection of God's work and man's work. James is saying, could it be that God wants to use you as an instrument of salvation, as an instrument of bringing someone to him, as an instrument of rescue for people who've lost their way? And I hope right now you're kind of a little bit thinking, wow, you know, you think God might use me in something as important as that? Absolutely. You don't have to be a spiritual Christian. Elijah had a nature just like ours. Like, you got a nature just like me and Lloyd and the other men and women that lead at fellowship. We're part of this body together. It's what this passage teaches us. So here's the outline of the morning's message. We need to talk about a what, a why, and a how. The what is what this text is calling us to do. The why is why we almost never do it today. And the how is how we can begin to change that. What, why, and how. Let's dive in. Chapter five, verse 19 begins with these words, my brethren. Uh, brethren means brothers and sisters. I don't love the way that New American Standard translates that because it's kind of just an older archaic word, brethren. You know, no one says that anymore, but it gets the idea across. But brothers and sisters. Now, we, this has already been a theme for us this morning. It's a theme in the book of James. He uses this same word, Brethren, 15 times in the book, this is his last time that he'll use it. Remember, James is a pastor. So every time you see that word brethren or you know, brothers and sisters, what he's doing here, he's putting on his pastor hat. He's looking out to his congregation, probably in his mind's eye. He can't see them anymore because they were in Jerusalem with him and now they've been scattered all throughout the world through persecution. He says, don't forget I love you. Don't forget we have a connection. You're my brothers and sisters. And so he's putting on his pastor's hat. He's saying, I love you. I don't want you to miss what I'm about to say. He goes on, verse 19, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, let's, let's pause right there again. Now, when you first hear that, you strays from the truth, what probably comes to your mind is maybe like you're, you're, you're having doubts in your faith, you know, or you're like your theology has gone askew, and your, your doctrine's off. So, you know, maybe someone used to um, believe in, uh, you know, believer's baptism, and now they're in the infant baptism camp, you know? <laughs> That's not what he's talking about here. That's not the kind of going astray. And I think the, the problem is the word truth in our culture today means something much, much more narrow than what it meant to the Hebrew mindset and to the early Christian mindset. When we think of truth, we primarily think of like intellectual assent, right? Like I believe something with my mind. That's what truth, there are things that are true, there are things that are not true, and what you believe with your mind um, kind of defines what you believe to be true. That's that, it's not untrue, but that's reductionistic. That's not as full as the Hebrew concept of truth. Hebrew people had a much more holistic understanding of truth. The Hebrew and the early Christian would say truth is a path of life. It's not a, a list of doctrine that you just know. It's, an, it, it's that, but it informs your whole life. It's a path of life. It integrates the whole person. In biblical language, it's the whole heart. All of who we are, our thoughts, yes, truth starts there. But also our emotions, our desires, and even our own choices, it's a path of life. And so uh, James is saying, if someone strays from the truth, it's not just that they change their doctrine or they're having doubts in their faith. It's like they, they were on the path of life and now they're on a different path. Do you remember in, um, I think this was James chapter two toward the end, we talked about two kinds of wisdom. Some of you were here for that message. We, we used the, the great poem, you know, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And, and, and James was talking about there's false wisdom, which is earthly and demonic, and it's gonna lead you ultimately to death. And then there's true wisdom, you know, which comes from above and it's gonna lead you ultimately to life. Here's the truth from that passage. This is just a recap from, from before. The path you walk is ultimately determined by where you think fullness of life is found. Because you're gonna be drawn toward where you believe life is just like a moth is drawn toward the light. 
That's a part of our human nature. It's wherever you think you're gonna find life, if that's in obedience to God, you're gonna obey God. If that's in separating yourself from him and going your own way, that, you're doing that because you think life's over there. Either God's way or your way, those are the two paths that James talked about before. Now I think he's kind of dipping back into that metaphor in our text this morning. So straying from the truth is not about someone having theological doubts, essentially. It's about someone losing their way. Another way to think about it. It's about someone who used to have a hold of the only lifeline that could get them through the twists and turns of the cave they're exploring and then back up to warmth and air and food. But now they've lost the rope. That's all embedded here in this first phrase, if any among you strays from the truth. Now, one more thing before I move on to the next phrase. Uh, I think if you're living in the first century and you're reading James' letter for the first time, or more than likely you're hearing it, you know, most people were illiterate then, and there was a, a copy that their, their, their community of faith would have, and it would be read to them by someone. If you're hearing James' words for the first time, and you get to this part, if any among you strays from the truth, you know what you're probably thinking the rest of that sentence is? You're probably thinking, then you're gone so don't stray from the truth. Like if anyone falls away, if you stray from the truth, forget about it. You've let go of the lifeline. Don't let go of that lifeline. Remember, this is the same letter that earlier it said, faith without works is dead. It was just like pounding on us. It's a hard, harsh letter in many ways. And that might be where you think James is going. Instead, he says, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. One of the most hopeful phrases in the book of James. Rescue's possible. Restoration is assumed. It's cause for celebration. It's cause for jubilation. Why? Because celebrate because someone's back on the Christian train? No. Celebrate because someone is back on the path of life. Then he goes on to verse 20. You know, if anyone... Among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, verse 20, let him know, him being the rescuer, that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, you feel the weight of that. Let him know that that's a big deal. Let him know there's a lot riding on that. You know, let him know that there can be nothing better, greater, higher than you could do than to save somebody, to rescue somebody. We have a bit of an interpretational dilemma here with verse 20. You know, some of you are already, you're already going there and, and I don't want to shy away from it. I, I want to jump right into it. There's a little bit of a debate about verse 20. How do you interpret this? Um, in other words, James is using language that makes it sound like, man, someone's getting saved. Like when they, when they come back, they're getting saved. And so you're thinking, oh, I must be talking about a, a non-Christian person outside of the church. Well, the problem with that is verse 19 already said, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth, Okay, so then you're like, okay, well, well, what's the other option? Maybe he's saying that you can actually be saved and then lose your salvation under some circumstances and then you know, someone's gonna go rescue you and bring you back in and then you're like, kind of resaved. Let's take that option off the table. It doesn't match verse after verse after verse in the New Testament that teaches us that once you're transferred from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. We believe that firmly and strongly with a lot of scriptural support. So what's going on here? How do you reconcile this? There's several different options, you know, and I'm not gonna take the whole rest of the sermon to talk about option A, option B, option C. Let me just tell you where I've landed as I've wrestled in this. Here's the interpretation I've landed on, and, and not with complete certainty, but with a, a good amount of confidence. In every church community, there are men and women who participate in the life of the church, but whose hearts have never actually come alive through faith in Jesus Christ. They're not actually believers. Now, what's interesting about this is they very well probably think they are because they do Christian things. Now, is this not a true in our culture? I mean, I talked to someone not too long ago. I was like, you know, tell me about your faith. Well, you know, I was born in this church and then I went from this church to that church and I did this, that, this religious thing and that. Well, tell me about your faith. Well, 
born in this church. They went to that church. You, know, you kind of get down in it. Like their, their church participation is the essence of their faith. And I don't know that individual's heart, but I do know there are some in any community of faith that participate in the life of the church whose hearts have never actually come alive through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no, yet there's no life of the spirit in them. I actually think this is who James has in mind frequently throughout his letter. And so it's no surprise that this interpretation would fit the context of the whole letter. Think about James 2, 19 to 20. James, we, we talked about this. This is one of Lloyd's messages a while back. You believe that God is one, you do well. He's talking about his, his brothers and sisters, men. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize that faith without works is useless? Remember, he keeps saying there's, there is a false faith. There is a, and there's a sense that, that some in the body of Christ are just participating in the Christian life. It's, it's not actually genuine faith. There's not two sides of a coin that shows in their life. Uh, one of the things I love about fellowship is because of our emphasis on grace and our emphasis on the gospel and, 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 and you know, the way the Bible's been taught here for years, there's, it's not that uncommon that, that we'll have a conversation with someone that goes a little bit like this. Come up to me or Lloyd or come up to someone in our small group ministry or, or my kid in you know, a children's ministry and, and they'll say, I used to think I was a Christian, but now I really get it. Like the penny has dropped so to speak, if you, if you know that expression. And they'll say, they'll, they'll say well, tell me more about that. And they'll say something like this. I, I, I've been going to church all my life and, and I didn't realize that I wasn't a Christian. You know, be, I've been doing Christian things and using Christian language, but I didn't understand everything was based on religious association or maybe intellectual understanding. But now I have made the conscious shift, shifting from my trust in my own religious efforts to trust in Christ's finished work for me. And that, men and women, is the change that matters. Like, that's trusting in the gospel. And this person will say, I didn't really understand the gospel before, but now I got it. And they're a new creation. That's not infrequent here. Now, here's the thing. Like I said a minute ago, we can't know what's in someone's heart. So what James is saying here, like, you, you can't know. It's like, Honestly, you can't know who's genuinely put their faith in Christ and who's just going through religious motions. You can't know that. And so if someone from the body, I mean our body, if they go away from the faith, if they, you know, if they were walking the path with believing Jesus is life or at least professing that Jesus is life and then they come over and now they're walking a different path, it, it could very well be that they never actually had put their trust in Christ to begin with. So go talk to them. Go find them. And if they come back, it's very possible that they're actually coming to Jesus for the first time. That's how I interpret these two verses in light of the whole book that we've been in. Now, according to James 19 and 20, isn't our part fascinating? Of course, it's God doing the saving. Of course it is. It can only be him. It's only by the spirit that, that anyone's regenerated. And yet through the mystery and grace of God acting through human agency, which is our theme in these three weeks, we get to be a part of it. I think that in and of itself should inspire us and motivate us. All right, so that's the what of the text. Now you, you understand what the text is saying. You understand what it means. The, the, the what is of the passage is this. When someone strays from the truth, Go find him or her. Bring him back. Now we have to get to the why question. Why are we so hesitant? Like, why do we almost never do this? And, and when we do it, why does it not go well? You know, I, I, we're, gonna get, we're gonna get to these questions. I think it's really interesting. Um, I think, primarily, it's because there's something important that we're not thinking rightly about. And I want to tell you what that is. I, I first want to ask if we can put that image of the heart on the screen that we've talked about so often here in the last six months of fellowship. You know, according to the Bible, your heart's the inner person. It's not just your emotions. It's your emotions and your thoughts and your desires and your choice. It's who you are deep down inside. You know, it's your inner person. That's the Hebrew idea, Hebrew, uh, the, the biblical idea also for heart. Now, 
if you have a thinking problem, like if you're thinking wrong about something, and I think we are, and I want to tell you what that thing is in a minute, it's going to affect the whole thing. If you're thinking wrongly, then your emotions, your desires, and your choices, none, none of it's going to be aligned right. And another way to think about it is if there's a, a clear command of scripture that we have a really hard time living out, i.e. there's something wrong with our choices, you kind of have to kind of trace back through the whole heart and say, where have we gone wrong ultimately in our theology, ultimately in our thinking. So, so leave that heart up there for a, a, a little while. I think there's something we're not thinking rightly about. And here it is. We don't think rightly about sin like even me saying the word sin, like in the room, there's this sense of like, ugh, you know, well, why do you have to go there? Next thing he's gonna talk about is hell. You know, like there's this like, can we talk about positive things? You know, that, that's out there it's in, our, in, in, in our culture day. Here's the problem, men and women. If we don't think rightly about sin, there's no way that we're gonna be able to engage and follow out this, this scripture. And, and here's, I wanna tease this out and spend a few minutes on it. In our culture, and I, I say that, not just the culture outside the church, but our culture inside the church and outside the church, the concept of sin has been whittled down and distorted and reduced to an almost unrecognizable thing. Here's how we, we tend to define sin, um, consciously and, and, and certainly unconsciously. Sin has been reduced to the simple idea of Breaking God's rules. And, and most people out there and in this room, if you're gonna ask him what is sin, you know, you'll give a bunch of different words, but it kind of ultimately comes down to, well, God has rules, and when you break the rules, that's sin. Now, that's not untrue. But it's just a tiny little part of what the Bible would teach about this. And, and, and why do we need to have a fuller, more understanding of, of sin? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you think about sin just that way, here's what plays out in your mental conception of God. And tell me if this isn't true in the non-church culture around us. It paints a picture of God as either a divine policeman writing tickets and issuing fines, or, or maybe, a little more positive side, a divine Santa Claus making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. You know, aren't those the caricatures of God? In, in our culture, and don't those things like in, impact us unconsciously even here in this room? Here's another way to say it. A shallow understanding of sin paints a caricature of God as a cosmic moral authority who randomly defines right from wrong so he can ding humanity for painting outside of his lines. Of course that seems ludicrous to people because it is ludicrous. Of course the society wants nothing to do with sin, with that kind of God, if he's gonna be that way. Do you, do you see how wrong thinking about sin? Now, what does this have to do with the context of obeying this morning's text? By the way, I'll talk in a minute about how we can think more rightly about sin. We'll get there. But here's what this has to do with the context of this morning's text. If that's how you understand sin, like even subtly or unconsciously or even a small amount, right? If that's how you understand sin, you will never attempt to rescue someone trapped and caught in sin. And to use James's words, you will never attempt to turn a sinner from the error of his way. Why would you? Just so he can get his name off God's naughty list? We have to think differently about sin so that we will actually care when our brothers and sisters and ourselves give ourselves over to it so then we can have the courage to make different choices. That's how this impacts the heart. We have to think more biblically. We have to have what I would even say a more robust theology about sin. I think this is one of the biggest problems facing the church today, which means it's one of our biggest opportunities. Here's a brief theology of sin, if I can do this in you know, three or four minutes, hopefully by, by way of a, a bit of a corrective with, with love, my brothers and sisters. Sin is anything that moves us further away from God's good design for his creation and for his people. Let me just say that again and think about the difference. You know, from sin is just breaking God's rules to sin is anything that moves us further away from God's good design for his creation and his people. 
Both in Hebrew and in Greek, the primary words used to describe sin carry the concept of there is missing the mark. So in archery, you know, you're off target a little bit. Well, off target of what? God's holiness, God's perfection? Yes, but I think even more true to the context of the whole scripture, off the mark of God's design, off the mark of God's intention. What is his intention for his creation? Life, peace, wholeness, fullness, completion, everything in its proper place so that the earth would flourish. That's the creation that God designed in Genesis 1 and 2. And so we've talked a number of times here, this is a very important word that we all need to know, shalom. It means peace in Hebrew, but it actually means something deeper than that. It means wholeness and fullness and completion. And so along comes a, a writer and theologian, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, a guy named Cornelius Plantinga. He, he wrote this incredibly great book about sin, you know, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And here's how he describes sin. He says, sin is the vandalism of shalom. What a picture that is. So, men and women, the effects of sin are always the diminishment of life. Less flourishing, less wholeness, more fragmentation, and ultimately the ultimate fragmentation and loss of life, which is called death. You see, earlier in the book, James says, don't be deceived. Remember, there's a pattern, there's a cycle that starts with sin and leads to death as inevitably as an arrow, as a line. The story of the Bible is the story of God's good creation, vandalized by sin, and the great personal sacrifice God made to rescue his people and restore his creation to his intention for it. One of the verses earlier that was on the screen during our offertory when we did the confessional and, and it, was, it was built in and written into the prayer was Psalm 1611. David writes, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. See, David gets it. He's like, why does he not want to sin? Why does he not want to stray? Because in your presence, God is joy. In your presence is the path of life, you see. God hates sin because sin separates us from life. Do you see how different this is than society's conception about sin, which leads to their conception about God? We have to come back to what the Bible says. So when we begin to think more biblically about sin, we can then begin to feel more biblically. Let's put the heart back up there we can then begin to feel more differently about sin, okay? So we've kind of now made the leap from our thoughts to our emotions. You'll begin to feel differently about both the sin in your own life and in the context of James 5, 19 and 20, the sin in other people's lives, your brothers and sisters. You're gonna care about their sin, not in judgment, but in love. You see, your emotions start to be changed from judgment to love because you're understanding what sin is. And how it's starving them of life, whether they know it or not, you see. Leave that up there, please. When Josh Bratchley dove into that Tennessee cave, he had two things that would keep him alive. The oxygen tank on his back and the lifeline in his hand. As soon as he lost the lifeline, he only had so many breaths left. When someone is living in opposition to God's design for them, they're not on God's naughty list. They're slowly dying. They are a cave diver who has let go of the rope that would lead them to life and they only have so many breaths left until all life is gone. James is saying, go find them. We must think differently about sin. So we will feel differently about sin and then desire to move toward people trapped in it. 
And, and that desire is where the motivation lies. You see, the motivation is then transformed to love. The reason our conversations don't go well with people that have you know, picked a different path and we kind of go to them and maybe in your own heart and intention, you're trying to live out, well, I gotta live out James 5, 19 to 20. I'm gonna go to them. You know, you're wrong. You know, like, you know, the way you're living is not good. It's not right. Let me show you chapter, verse, et cetera, et cetera. That oftentimes doesn't go very well because often than not, we're not truly motivated by love. There are other motivations, maybe our own guilt, um, maybe anger. Um, other, other things sneak in, and, and it's not actually love that usually is underneath many of those conversations. And, and don't even get me started on social media with the debates going back and forth between lifestyles and other kinds of things. And Christians engaging with a lack of love never turns out. Never turns out. We've got to think rightly about sin so that we'll feel differently about sin, so that the desire of love can begin to be formed in us, and then we make new choices. You see, your thoughts affect your emotions, desires, and choices. Your theology affects the whole heart. That's what Lloyd and I have been trying to say for the last six months. You see, that's why we're a Bible church. That's why we're not going to stop being a Bible church. We're not going to stop teaching God's word. But we also say it's not just about what you know and what you do. The, the picture of whole life that scripture creates is, is this. And that's how it works. Your theology affects your whole heart. And we've talked about the what of the passage. We, we've answered a couple why questions. Like, why do we tend to, to, to not engage this? And when we do, why does it tend to go poorly? We're not thinking right, which is influencing all these other things. Now, the last question with our last few minutes here, how do we change? How might we change? Well, of course, it starts with thinking differently. We, we, gotta, we gotta develop a theology of sin. We're gonna keep talking about it. We're gonna keep teaching it here in fellowship. But I want to talk a little bit about a different how. I want to talk about how do all these things come together? How, how does the heart come together? How do our thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices? How do these two things of like sin is desperately deadly and God desires life for us. How do those two concepts come together? There's a beautiful answer. They come together in Jesus. Track with me down this path. Jesus is the only human being who fully and truly understands sin and yet has never experienced it. In other words, he has traversed the twists and turns of the cave, but he's not trapped in it. And so he is the rescuer. In describing his own purpose for coming to earth, Jesus said he, he didn't come to take anything away from us, but rather to give something to us. What do you think he wants to give? Life. John 10.10, 10, he said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. What do you mean abundantly? Well, we, we call it wholehearted life. Only found in Jesus Christ. It's why he came. Well, what do you mean wholehearted life? What do you mean abundant life? Breaths, men and women. Deep breaths that never end. The oxygen tank you have on your back is depleting and it is a matter of time before the gauge is down to zero. Without the breath of God in you, the spirit of God in you through faith in Jesus Christ, you will die. You will die. We have all been lost in darkness. No knowledge or ability to save ourselves. Our own oxygen tanks diminishing with every breath we take and our rescuer went down into the cave, literally 
under the earth and pulled us out. He plucked us from death to life. He is our rescuer. And therefore, he is the one who changes our minds, our thoughts. He is the one who shapes in us affection and love for him. He's the one that satisfies our desires and chasing life in all these other places. He begins to satisfy them in part, in whole later, but in part now, and frees us to make new choices. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Some of the new choices he wants us to make, according to James 5, 19 to 20, is to take courageous steps toward others who are still lost and need to be found, just like we were. May it be. We want to move toward a time of remembrance and celebration this morning through the Lord's Supper. And what a great way to end this service, any service. Think about all that's embedded, the the theology of redemption in those elements, the emotion of remembering what Jesus did for us, the desires of our heart that are satisfied in Christ and literally the hunger that food goes in your mouth in order to satisfy a hunger that you have. And finally, the choice this morning to receive, to take. You see, that tray is gonna go by. If you don't make the choice to take, I'm okay. (laughs) If you don't make the choice to take, you won't receive this morning. Let me invite you to receive. If you've not been at fellowship when we've celebrated Lord's Supper before, uh, this is not just a fellowship thing. You don't have to be a member here, a regular attender to receive this morning, but you do need to be someone who has shifted their trust from your own efforts to Christ's effort for you, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you've done that prior to today or today, receive. Take the bread as it comes. Take the cup as it comes. Just hold on to it until everyone has received. And then I'll come back up here and I'll lead us to eat and drink. Some of you this morning, for the very first time, maybe the penny has dropped. Maybe you said, I, I don't know that I actually really understood the gospel before today and, and I'm starting to get it. You know, maybe, maybe the Spirit's done something in you through this text this morning and you see yourself like Josh Bratchley at the end of that cave needing rescue, and Jesus has been shown to you this morning through God's word as the rescuer who has come to give you life. This morning can be the first time you receive communion as a new creation. And all you need to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ. Just call out to God in your own mind and heart through a prayer. Say, I believe Jesus came to rescue me, and I receive. I receive the rescue. Let me pray for us, and then the ushers will pass the elements. Our Father... Could all of this be true? That we were lost and then we were found. That we were dying and then we were given new life. We believe it. We believe it through the truth of God's word, through the agreement in our own hearts by the spirit that indwells us, we believe. Father, I pray for those who do not believe yet. I pray that we would have the courage in this room to love them enough to engage them around conversations of life. You would give words in the situations. It's so hard to know what to say. It's so hard not to come across as a judgmental person. It's just incredibly difficult. And yet, Father, we have your spirit in us. Would you speak through us by your spirit? May it be you that's doing the speaking through us in this marvelous, mysterious intersection of your work in our work. Father, I pray for those in the room, and I believe there literally are some, that for this morning, for the first time, they're like, I think I have the faith to believe this. Father, help them to know that it's true. Help them to know it's right. Help them to know that all it takes is a step of faith toward you, and you are there with open arms. Jesus, their rescuer, May we remember well as we take the bread and the cup. May we celebrate well. May we reflect well in these few minutes as the plates are passed around. It's in the name of Jesus.
we pray. Amen. The bread and the cup represent life for us. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which I'm giving to you. Take it, eat it, and remember. And after supper, he took the cup, and in the same way, he gave thanks, and then he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you, so you may have life as often as we drink it. We drink it in remembrance of him. Scripture says every time we eat the bread and drink the cup that we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And there's so much hope in that. He's coming again to finish what he started. And so we're gonna look to that and celebrate our redemption as we close our service. If you would stand to your feet, let us sing this song of redemption. You came from heaven's throne, acquainted with our sorrows, to treat the debt we owe, your suffering for our freedom, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God in my place, your blood poured out my sin.
came upon your heart, my shame upon your shoulders, the power of sin undone, yes, the cross for my salvation, the send you out with a few words from Paul in his letter to the Colossians. And right before he writes this incredible passage about the beauty of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right before he says that, he sets the table by reminding us what this Jesus did for us. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Rescue, redemption, forgiveness. Those are yours through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember that as you go and have a great week.